Well, good evening, everybody. Can we try that one on for size? His love endures forever. So let's, let, me, let me try it, okay? I'm going to say, give thanks to the Lord for He is good, and you're going to say, His love endures forever. Yes? Like church people, like just like that whisper, okay? His love endures Okay? Let's try it. Maybe you'll surprise me. We're talking about expectations and surprises tonight. Maybe you'll surprise me. Give thanks to the Lord for He is good. His that's it. That's a surprise. That's good. I love that. Yes, tonight we're going to talk about expectations, expectations, and how God seems to surprise us at every turn. Jesus was always about surprising people. And uh, the day that we celebrate churchwide, worldwide, tomorrow, Palm Sunday, is no exception. It's a day of expectation. God's people had expected something or someone, and the disciples of Jesus were expecting something of Him, and so we're talking about expectations. Tomorrow is Palm Sunday, which would be the reason why we've been singing this word, Hosanna, and saying Hosanna tonight, but more on that in a minute. So this whole business of expectations, it's so natural for us. Every time something new is on the horizon, okay, every time something is coming down the pike, what do we start to do? We start to formulate expectations, right? If you're the optimist, and in my marriage, I'm the eternal optimist, I start to get excited about these things, yes? Like, think about your job, like the, the job that you have currently, right? Because the job you had before, you hated, correct? But when you went to these interviews, and you start to get this idea that it's going to be yours, you start to say things like, ah, but this job is different. This job is going to be awesome. This job is my true calling. And this boss will be a lot better than that jerk I had before. And these coworkers will finally understand me when I take their yogurt out of the fridge or whatever you guys do that work in offices. Yes? I don't know. If, if the jobs don't work, we, another place we really create expectations is our marriages or just any relationship, yes? I love uh, premarital counseling or just time together to kind of sort through some things, to have these hard conversations. And uh, I think one of the biggest deals is getting our expectations out on the table. I love when Pastor Bud meets with people for the first time. He tells me he takes a sheet of paper and he writes out, okay... Fiance, groom to be, write out everything on a sheet of paper you want to change about your soon-to-be significant other. This is a dangerous exercise. This is why you should ask me for premarital counseling. <laughs> so Bud has him like go into the corner. Did y'all do this? Okay, right here, living proof. And they're still married, so this is good. He, send, he sent Ben over to one side of his house and Courtney over to the other side. And he said, Courtney, now you, here's eight pieces of paper. I mean, 80 pieces of paper. And you write out everything you want to change about Ben. And so she writes out this and he writes out this. And then Bud says, okay, uh, time's up. Come back. And then he takes this sheet of paper. He takes these expectations and he says, now, take it, look at it, now shred it. And then shred it again and then crumple it up and then go put it in the trash. Because the thing about expectations, whether it's a job, whether it's kids, whether it's relationships, whether it's a vacation, or whether it's marriages, is the more you build up expectations, when reality hits, the harder they're going to fall. The biggest issue with marriage, I think, too, is these unmet expectations. And maybe it's a problem of just simply not getting them out on the table. 
And so I think when we approach our relationship with God, which so much in Scripture is talked about as a relationship like marriage or a love relationship, I think we need to be honest about our expectations with our life with God. Do you remember a time when you weren't a Christian? Do you have any recognition of that? Those of you who came to Jesus as adults, when you came to Jesus, did you expect things like everything will finally be solved in my mess of a life? Yes? But really what you came to find was that you've still got a mess of a life and and you're still just kind of working through this, but maybe your expectation is tempered and you realize, oh yeah, life is still a mess, but now I'm not doing it alone. I'm doing it with the presence of the living Christ, and I'm doing it with other people. And to do it with other people in church is still messy. So maybe you had an expectation of church. Maybe you had an expectation when you came to this church, because you'd been to all the huge Dallas mega churches with like slick lights and way cooler sanctuary and banners, and you weren't coming on Saturday at five. And so you come here and you have these expectations. But when reality hits, the higher these things go, the harder they seem to fall. And I loved what Kathy said. Is Kathy? Where did Kathy go? I loved what Kathy said last week when she was preaching and closing out our sermon series in Ruth. Did y'all remember she said, doubts don't sideline God. Rather, he wants to use our doubts and turn them into a dialogue with him. This is what Naomi did. She stuck with it. And what happened was she had this dialogue with Yahweh. Job had a dialogue with Yahweh. And what happens on the other end after the dialogue is you begin to see in new light, in new ways, how God surprises us and can really show us what's going on in deeper levels when our expectations aren't met. It's like St. Mick Jagger said, You can't always get what you want, but if you try some time, you might find what? You get what you need. Oh, yeah. We need to be honest about our expectations of God. Because I think when we get them out on the table, Jesus might then be able to turn them over. And when he turns them over like he's going to do this week as we look back on this Passion Week, he's going to come in in the midst of great expectation to God's city as God's king. And then he goes to God's temple and he turns over everyone's expectations. And what happens when he does that is he shows us, he snaps us back into reality. And shows us what life is really about. And this is, I think, what Palm Sunday is about. So since we're talking about expectations, as I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 21. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. Uh, Grab one in front of you. It's not going to be on the screen. Um, Or you can grab it on your phone. Since we're talking about expectations, and because it's Palm Sunday, and because it's the Easter season, every one of you out there who's been around for a few years knows that you're expecting me to launch into a Jesus Christ superstar or something, yes? Because it's like every Easter, I go back and look at what I've said, and it's always like Jesus Christ superstar getting in there. Well, these expectations are not going to get met. No JC superstar. You there with me in Matthew 21? We're looking at Palm Sunday. We're looking at Jesus being not the king they wanted or expected, but we see Jesus will be the king they needed. 
And I really, really hope and pray for us that we would walk this fine line because you need to expect that God can show up. You need to expect that God can do what you're calling out to Him to do. But we need to walk that fine line between what God can do and what God will do. Are you with me? Sometimes they're going to line up. Sometimes God will give you not just what you need, but what you want. And other times he won't. My mind is not far from Amy Kahn, who is out at Mansfield, holding the hand of her uncle who's been on hospice for a couple weeks and is probably going to die tonight. Who wants that? No one. And he might not even need it. But the tension is always walking with him, turning our expectation, our hopes, our desires, our fears into a dialogue and going with him. Because Jesus was not the king we wanted or expected or needed. Oh, he is the king we needed. So we find Jesus about to surprise us again, and I hope he surprises us this week as we prepare to celebrate the surprising crucifixion and the surprising resurrection. Let's look at the very beginning of Matthew chapter 21, verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem, they being Jesus and a whole company of disciples, not just the twelve, but lots, they've been headed to Jerusalem. They're fixated on it. They're going. And they come to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives. That's a quick suburb right there off of Jerusalem on the slope of this great storied prophetic mountain, Mount of Olives. So they're coming to Jerusalem, yes? And when are they coming? Does anybody want to venture to guess? Who has some Jewish friends who are celebrating a different holiday this week? Anybody want to venture a guess? They're going to have a meal. Passover. They're coming when? Passover. They're going where? Jerusalem. And so what Jesus does, he says he sent two disciples. So he sends two and says to them, go to the village ahead of you. So they're like circling around Bethphage. And he says, hey, hop into Bethphage and go and do this, okay? Take notes. Write it down. Please don't mess this up. It is very important you do what I say. This is what Jesus said in my translation. Maybe yours says something different. Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. Okay? Two disciples go to get two animals. Verse 3. If anyone says anything to you, say that the, Lord's need, the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. I love this. This is so born identity of Jesus. It's not even funny. A lot of times when like I'm reading about this and even remembering like stuff from last year, some scholars will say like clearly he had foreknowledge and he knew that there is going to be this cult at this gate at this time. And I just think I like Jesus born identity style just setting things up because Jesus knows what he's up to and it is very crucial that he gets these two animals. So he knows a guy who knows a guy who has a donkey and then the donkey's young male colt tied right next to him. And Jesus needs these animals. He needs them. 
So he goes born identity on him, and they have this covert spy meetup, and he's getting these things. That's what I like to believe. Now, Jesus, he might have known, and he just knew that he saw him, and the Spirit of God gave him this prophetic vision. Maybe. I like born identity Jesus, okay? But Jesus doesn't beat up people like Jason Bourne does. I digress. Y'all are already done with Palm Sunday. It's very important he gets these animals. Why? Matthew tells us, look with me in verse 4. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. What prophet? He's going to quote Zechariah. Say to daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Why these animals? Matthew says to fulfill this passage. What is this passage? Let's look. This is Zechariah 9.9. It's on the screen. You don't have to turn. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. What's Zion? Israel, even closer. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. A lot of times in Psalms and prophets, uh, those couplets of lines, they are really two ways of saying the same thing. So Jesus is going to Jerusalem. He's riding a donkey. And it's to fulfill this passage about someone and some people who are supposed to rejoice and shout in Jerusalem. And then he says, see, Jerusalem, your king comes to you. Aha. Now we're waking up here because Matthew is saying there's something more going on here than just a donkey and Jesus riding on her colt. He's righteous and victorious. Matthew didn't get that line in there. Lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, Jesus, what is he doing here? Why does he need these two people? This is hugely important. He's trying to send a message Because the first thing Matthew tells us he does before he gets these cults, on his way into Jerusalem, he heals two blind men. If you have a Bible open, look just at the tail end of chapter 20. Jesus heals two blind men. They said, we want to see. And Jesus had compassion and touched their eyes. Immediately they received their sight and they followed him. Now, one of the things when you read the Gospels is you begin to see that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John arrange their Gospels in such a way to keep us awake, to maybe they're trying to give us a clue. And so Jesus gets these two donkeys. Matthew says, hello, hello, ding, ding, ding. Remember Zechariah? And he places the scene where Jesus heals two blind men as if to say, if you have eyes to see See what's going on. And remember, he's coming during Passover. That's hugely important. Do y'all remember what Passover was? Man, tonight is such a Sunday school night. It's crazy. I'm asking y'all questions like I'm a Sunday school teacher. I'm preaching and teaching or I don't know what. Passover, of course, was in the Exodus when God passed over the firstborn of Israel and he rescued his people from who? Egypt. Big, bad, burly Egypt. He rescued him, Israel, from her enemies. So Jesus 
is coming during Passover when people are all keyed up and jazzed up and remembering a thousand years ago when God rescued his people from their enemies. And then Jesus comes on a donkey and Matthew says, if you have eyes to see, see what Jesus is up to. He's up to this passage. What is the expectation of these people seeing Jesus on a donkey? He's done a lot of cool stuff. He's healed in the power of the Holy Spirit. He's preached in the power of the Holy Spirit. He's talked about the kingdom of God that's available to all the wrong people, but something really incredible and special is happening here, and it's keyed up their expectations to a fever pitch because they have in their minds ringing in their ears, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bone will be broken. Read this. No more war anymore. It's not necessary because this king is coming, gentle, triumphant, victorious on a donkey. You don't need the battle bow because he will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. The next passage of interest is same chapter, verse 16. The Lord their God will save his people. On that day, as a shepherd saves his flock, they will sparkle in his land like jewels in a crown. Do you think they are expecting big things from Jesus? Shake your head, yes. When Jesus comes and Matthew tells us he's riding a donkey and it's like Zechariah and Jesus is like this king that's coming on a colt, they are saying, oh my gosh, finally. They're expecting rescue. They're expecting victory. They're expecting to kick Rome and that Caesar and even that fake King Herod right in the butt out of town. This is what's happening. How does Jesus then upend it? When we get this expectation, what is he really up to? You know, in college, I'm going to get real vulnerable here. In college, I'm going to tell you, I was into some weird stuff. And in my bachelor degree, undergrad degree, I got a communication studies degree, which is like speech or interpersonal communication. But I really got my fire lit by this weird little classes, this whole track of performance art. And what it was, was I figured out that if I took these classes, I didn't have to write papers. I got to talk my papers. And then it got even weirder. I got to, like, dress up and do, like, weird, far-out Yoko Ono stuff. And I wouldn't even have to talk. I would just be weird, and it would make a statement. Yes, what? And what would happen is this. And because Amy's in child care, it's okay. We, I would do these shows like in a black box theater, like super far out stuff, and I would come to Amy and my family, and David, you went to one of them, and David can vouch for this weirdness too. Talk to him after the, after the service. And I said, well, what did you guys think? And then Amy and David, because they were like, they were true, true friends of mine. My parents were like, oh, that was great, sweetie. And they said, we did not know what the freak you were doing the whole time. What is this stuff? That was just, um, whatever, I don't even know what's going on. But it's making a statement. There is something deeper going on here. 
And what we were trying to do in college and failed was trying to parody something that was in our culture that we saw. What Jesus is doing successfully is parroting their expectations of a Messiah who's coming not to kill, not to deal with problems on the surface, but to even if you'd hang with him, deal with things on such a deeper and more profound level, and he won't ever pick up a sword. And this is what's profound, and this is why when you hang with Jesus, just when you think you have him figured out, he completely upends and surprises you. And just when they think he's going to march into the temple, and he's going to say, yes, you guys are doing it just right. The temple has a, is a shining, and it's sparkling like a jewel in the crown, and I've come to rescue it. I've come to restore it. While they're singing in a few moments, he's going to weep over it, and he's going to walk into the temple and says, you so polluted this place, it's not even funny. And what he does again is another street theater performance art way about which he's saying, rethink what you're up to. Rethink me, a king on a donkey. Rethink me in the temple. I've not come to bless it. I've come to pronounce judgment on it. Something new is going on. You're out here in this field or in this courtyard where the nations are supposed to come and worship where in Zechariah he talks about the nations will call the Lord blessed you think you're doing this thing okay and what you've done is you've polluted this place it's not a house of prayer it's not a shining light for the Gentiles you have so missed the mark and you have so little time to get it right how many of you have been tracking along with our Lent reading in Luke's gospel and you read a lengthy passage, Jesus is talking so much about the temple. And you begin to step out of this fundamentalist, uh, like end times thing where this is a secret code for this or that. Jesus is pleading with his people and saying, look, you've expected one thing. I'm not talking about 2,000 years in the future. I'm saying your temple, your way of life, these enemies are going to destroy you if you don't get on board with God's kingdom. And the gospel that he says, very first day one, out of the waters of baptism, out of the wilderness of temptation, and he says, repent, turn from this way, you're doomed to be destroyed by Rome and anybody else who would come after him, and get on my program, my kingdom, but my kingdom will surprise you. Because then the first sermon he preaches in Matthew is blessed are the poor, blessed are the peacemakers, not warmongers, blessed not are the rich, blessed are not the ones who are full and proud, but meek and poor and persecuted. And Jesus is turning tables every stinking page of these incredible stories. And we miss it because we're doing another Palm Sunday. We've got to put ourselves back in this place because 200 years, these people, 200 years before Jesus, they saw a guy ride to town. His name was Judas Maccabeus. If you have a Bible or came from a Catholic background that had the Apocrypha, those extra Bibles, you got the Bible Plus deluxe version. In the Maccabean places, it's the story of Hanukkah. And it's a story of a guy who rode into town with people waving palm branches and singing, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, because he's the one who took a sword, took a revolt, and wiped clean Roman oppressors. And he came to the temple, he restored and blessed the temple, and purified the temple, and for a hundred years... 
the Maccabean family, the Maccabean dynasty, through might and power and affirmation of the religious temple, had this hundred years of prosperity until another king and another emperor came and totally torched them. So there's this other hint, there's this other expectation, maybe Jesus will be like him again. And maybe this Passover meal will be the one where we finally say, goodbye Rome, hello the kingdom that reigns from sea to sea. So it's no wonder then that just like these people did 200 years before when Judas Maccabeus rolled into town as a king presenting himself to deal with Israel's enemies with the palm branches they celebrate, they do the same with Jesus. Look back in Matthew 21, verse 6. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They got the two animals and then they brought the donkey and the colt and they placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road. Now this is really incredible. Y'all seen the old movies in which um, like a dapper young British man is stepping out of a carriage and then the dapper young British woman steps out and he says, oh, let me get that, madam. And he puts his thing down in the puddle, that would be a big deal if, um, if he didn't have like 500 cloaks. This is a big deal because how many cloaks did these people have? Not many. And I've been on the Grand Canyon following donkeys down and it gets pretty messy. This is an incredible sign of respect. They lay their cloaks down and then they cut branches from the trees. Now it's not even saying palm. Give me a break, Matthew. It's Palm Sunday. I wish you would have said palms. I think John says palms. They cut them from the trees and they spread them on the road too. It's like a bride coming with roses. This is the typical way to usher in a king or dignitary in their day. It's showing great signs of sacrifice and respect. And they're saying they run out to meet him. They run out to meet him. And then they bring him back into the city gate and into the city. When I landed at Love Field from uh, this conference that Bud and I were at two weeks ago, um, Amy picks me up and she's like, look, we have got to go down the stretch of Mockingbird again because it's the weirdest thing. Every 20 feet are policemen. And I said, 20 feet? You mean like 20? She said, feet, 20 feet. I said, so there's like, she's like, yes, there are 500 police officers from Mockingbird to the tollway. I'm like, this is crazy. What are you talking about? And so sure enough, we, we get into the car. We're headed down Mockingbird. She's like, see, 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 see. And I'm like, this is crazy. I'm so sorry. Forgive me, baby. This is every 20 feet. This is wild. Do you know why they were there? Yes, because we roll our window down and we're like, hey, is Obama here? And he says, let's just say someone very important has come to town. This is how we usher people in. How they usher people in is to run outside, put these gates, put these cloaks down, wave these palm branches, make a big to-do about this because it's a big to-do. Their expectations are at a fever pitch, and so the crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed him shouted, what? Hosanna! To the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest 
heaven. This is what we just sang. And what we sang, that word Hosanna, what's on this banner, Hosanna, is a word that has made it through the centuries, that's been like reworked and repurposed out of the Hebrew language that's just become its own word. It's like hallelujah, which means praise the Lord or praise the name of the Lord. Hallelujah. Hosanna is a Hebrew word taken from Psalm 118. If you're taking notes, you can write down Psalm 118 because Matthew is going to quote again another old passage for those of us with eyes to see something going on. They're quoting Psalm 118 verses 25 to 26. Hosanna, what does that word mean? Hosanna means basically, save us, we cry. Or we beseech thee, save us. What is their expectation here? If we hadn't missed it already, we cannot miss it now. Hosanna to the son of David. Save us from the kingly line like King David. Great David's greater son, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. To do something in the name of the Lord is to do it like him and on his behalf. So you better deal with these issues. Hosanna, save us, we cry, in the highest heaven. Hosanna had morphed not just to the save us, but save us. It's a praise word. It's a shout word. That's why another song we used to sing was Shout Hosanna. And it was an upbeat rock and roll because who can save us but God's king? From where could he save us but God's city? The expectations are through the roof. So when Jesus finally entered, the whole city was stirred. The whole city Rome is expecting bad news. The Jewish folks are expecting revolution. The disciples are expecting, man, maybe this kingdom he's talking about. Yeah, I know he said that it was this business of like a mustard seed and it's, and it's kind of working its way through like leaven. But dude, I'm pretty sure with this parade, we're going we're gonna to rock and roll this week. The whole city is stirred up. And what we miss is that in each of the synoptic or Matthew, Mark, and Luke, each of those gospels, Jesus has told his closest followers three times, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. And three times the gospel writers tell us, and they had no idea what he's talking about. Because our expectations, when they mount up and mount up and mount up and mount up, and even when they are for God or with God, and God, I just know that this is your will. I just know that you want to do this. I just know that you're all about this. Sometimes if pain narrows our perspective like we've talked about in Ruth, expectations narrow our perspective to where we can see no will but ours, not his. And this is what I wish I could tell you otherwise, church. Because what Bud and I do, what your missional community leaders do, what you do for one another is beg God with deep hosannas, save us, save this person, heal this person, fix this issue. And what happens is so many times our hosannas aren't met with what we want or what we expected. Sometimes, and we go right back to Paul, sometimes the thorn is there. 
And sometimes what we hear is not, yes, I will do exactly what you say. I've come in the name of the Lord. Sometimes we need to hear what Paul heard. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Where would he get such an idea like that? Because somehow Jesus' power and Jesus dealing with the forces, not just the forces of Rome, but the forces behind and underneath Rome, the Satan and his minions, the forces that are still at work in the oppressive cultures and societies and sickness and mental illness and addiction, the same forces then that were plaguing us now are plaguing them then, and Jesus goes to work not just on the surface level, but his power is perfected in weakness, where rather than kill, he is killed. And with eyes to see and ears to hear, this whole city is buzzing, and they're asking the crucial question, who is this? Now the crowds say, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Now this totally fits their worldview. Ain't nobody running around saying Jesus is the son of God who died for my sins and I'm going to heaven when I die. Because nobody expected him to die. Jesus is a prophet. They say this all the time in the Gospels. Powerful in word and deed. This is what prophets were about. Prophets would do these enacted parables, these performance art things all the time. This totally fits their worldview. But that crucial question as we wind down here, who is this? They wanted a prophet, but he's going to come and pronounce on God's behalf that this city is under judgment. And while they continue to sing Hosanna, Matthew tells us, Luke tells us, Mark tells us, he gets back up on that mountain and he weeps over his city who did not heed the word to repent and enter in on the kingdom of God. They wanted a prophet. They expected a prophet. But he says this city is under judgment. The word he has for them is not blessing, but warning and judgment. They expected a Messiah. Is Jesus the Messiah? Yes. But Jesus gets enthroned on a cross. And we who've had 2,000 years and the stations of the cross and we're going to have a good Friday service in this room, Friday night, 7 o'clock with Freeman Heights. Larry and I are going to talk about the cross. We're going to talk about all these nuances and these ways of looking at it. We've had 2,000 years to marinate on the cross. But you talk about expectations of going to war, of being enthroned in Herod's palace or somewhere else in Jerusalem. Rome didn't just put thieves on the cross. We've kind of made that a nice blanket term about just thieves. They didn't put people who snatched purses on the cross, right? They put people who thought they were a king. What did they put over Jesus' throne, the cross? You talk about the surprise to end all surprises. The disciples who had heard him say this three times, who had talked about how when prophets go to Jerusalem, they get killed. They've heard him say the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. But when you're looking up at the bloodied, naked, beaten body of your friend and Lord and your countries and the world's king hanging, 
in agony? Try to get out of that space after 2,000 years where we've dressed it up and we've even dressed Jesus up. This is the surprise to end all surprises. This is the surprise that Satan and his angels shuddered because they could have seen this thing going a million different ways and Satan tried to get Jesus to do any of the other ones. But he would have never conceived of the crucified God. And so what happens then is they expected a rescue from this God who is crucified, but he doesn't just go to work to kick out one king so another one can come that's stronger, bigger, faster 20 years later. He doesn't just go to work on the surface. He goes to work in the depths of sin and shame and death because the enemy that he's dealing with is not just a Caesar, but death, its very self. Our expectations could never have prepared us for this, but we've got so much church in us that we lose it. So my prayer for us is to put ourselves in this story. Are we the blind men who have one week with Jesus? They're on the road and they're hearing these great songs, completely unaware that on Friday they're going to go out the other side to a different mountain and see this person after their eyes have only been seeing for one week to see this person called Messiah hung and enthroned on a cross. Are we those people? Are we the crowd that welcomes him joyfully, that, you know, waves our hands and we sing the Hosanna songs every Saturday? Are we the people, the disciples, who are still tracking with him, but still asking him questions like, who's the greatest? Like they just did before he came into Jerusalem. Can we allow ourselves to be surprised and can we allow ourselves to follow him all the way to the cross? And here's how I've been living in this passage this week. Because I wonder, what can we say about Palm Sunday again? Not that I've said it all, but it's such the expectation we have that this is what we talk about. Here's another Easter. Here's another Easter story. But where I've been living in this passage is I think Jesus visits us all the time. He visits us all the time. But we are so hung up on what we want to see, on our expectations of how He works, that, that me refuses to be surprised. But I think Jesus visits us all the time. I think he visits us on Saturday nights. And how I've been praying, and would you please join me, is that he would inhabit this place, that he would inhabit the praise of his people in such a way, not that we just have a great time on Saturdays, but it propels us out into love our neighbors and actually not just some nice things that we expect to hear, some nice things we expect to sing, but that we could maybe embody because we have so met the Jesus who's visiting us. Because I'm so tired of just doing church. I'm so tired of just getting here on Saturdays. What are we expecting? What are you expecting of me? What am I expecting of Kelly and David and John and Lynette and Courtney and Kristen and anyone else? We're expecting to be served. We're expecting a warm fuzzy. And there are so many better things to do on Saturday evenings. And I don't say that to berate you. I say that not to berate me. I say that to wake us up to what we're really up to here. Because God is visiting us. The Spirit is within us. The Spirit is uniting us. The Spirit is nudging us each day as we go through our week. And maybe it's a cult that you got to surrender because the Lord needs it. 
Maybe it's a cloak that you've got to lay down. Maybe it's a palm branch you've got to get up and you've got to celebrate what God is doing in your midst. Maybe it's just the fact that you've got to follow him through this wild week and expect him to surprise you. Whatever it is, the Spirit will try to get to you. But if we've got our expectations, if we've got our blinders on, we're going to miss him. We're going to miss this king who has come. And so now we're going to come to the table. We're going to come to him with the deep hosannas. What needs fixing? What are we expecting him to do something about? But could we lay it out there before him? Could we sing a hosanna that is, thank you, God, keep on? Or are we going to sing a hosanna that save me, I'm barely holding on? But would we come to him because he's coming to us? Could we hold these hosannas, hold these expectations before him to lay them out, to create a dialogue with him and see him surprise us and show us life that we could have never imagined because he wants to bless us more immeasurably than we could ever ask or imagine? But would we look for him and would we do it, church, especially this week? especially to behold the king who is even beginning to reign from a bloodied cross. Father, we're so grateful for this time. We're grateful for this beautiful day. We are grateful for life and breath, and as Kelly prayed earlier, all the things we can't see. So, Lord, we trust that the Spirit of God is groaning deeply in places and in words that we cannot even come close to making sense of. But we know the Spirit is groaning for this world, groaning for our broken hearts, groaning, God, that you would put this world back together. So we say, Hosanna, save us. Out of one side of our mouth, we say, save us as a celebration of the King who has come to defeat sin, death, and Satan. But on the other side of our mouth, Lord, there are so many of us, myself included, saying and crying out Hosanna from a deep place of a groaning place in which we have not seen your salvation yet. So be for us who you need to be, not who we want you to be. For that king is much better than we could ever imagine. We pray all this in the strong name of our king. Amen. Lord Jesus, we are a fickle people, quick to turn away. We are quick to flock to you when all is well, but we are prone to scatter when there is opposition or criticism, too often we have kept silent before you, afraid to proclaim your praise. It is easy to join the crowd as you ride triumphantly into Jerusalem, singing our joys and expectations, dancing our hopes and dreams. It is far more difficult to stand by you as the crowd cries for your crucifixion. Forgive our weakness when we turn away. May we be strengthened for the journey ahead as we relive your suffering and death that we might stay beside you to the end. May you give us the courage to shout our hosannas, not only today, but each and every day. Go in peace.